Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The wellness community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at over 170 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Well, in 2010, the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act signed into law by President Barack Obama as part of the Affordable Care Act aimed to promote development of biologic products and create competition with the goals of increasing treatment options and reducing healthcare costs, certainly both very good goals. Uh, We are really starting to see the fruits of that labor with several biosimilars coming to the medical marketplace and many more under review for approval. And we are going to be talking today about biosimilars. In 2015, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved the first biosimilar product, which happens to be a supportive treatment for cancer patients undergoing chemotherapy for acute myeloid leukemia. Biosimilars are still relatively new, and many patients and healthcare providers have many questions about them. That's why on today's show, we have invited an FDA Food and Drug Administration representative to explore biosimilars, discuss uh, the promise that they may hold for cancer patients. With us today, we are so pleased to have Dr. Leah Crystal, who is the Associate Director for Therapeutic Biologics in the Office of New Drugs in the FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. Dr. Crystal leads the Therapeutic Biologics and Biosimilars staff. Her team is responsible for ensuring consistency in the scientific and regulatory approach and advice to sponsors regarding development programs for proposed biosimilar products and related issues regarding development programs for therapeutic biologics. Prior to joining the FDA, Dr. Crystal received her PhD in molecular and cellular biology and pathology, marine biomedicine, and environmental science from the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. She also spent two years at the University of South Carolina as an associate research professor. Dr. Crystal, you may have the longest job title in D.C. I'm not sure, but I want to welcome you to the show today. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Leah Crystal, um, again, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us. Um, I think biosimilars are a new topic for many, um, including many of our listeners who are patients and and survivors and and family members. I know that uh, we certainly have a lot of questions, and I know that you will be able to uh, answer them for us today. But before we jump in uh, on the question of biosimilars, can you introduce yourself a little bit more to the audience and tell us about your role at the FDA, again, for folks listening, that's the Food and Drug Administration, part of our government? Sure. Uh, so, as was said, um, I'm the Associate Director for Therapeutic Biologics, and I lead the Therapeutic Biologics and Biosimilar staff uh, in the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the U.S. FDA. Um, so, what we're responsible for really is leading the biosimilar program in CEDAR. Um, so, we're responsible for ensuring scientific, regulatory, and legal consistency in our review of biosimilar products 
as well as other types of therapeutic biological products where we might have some overlapping scientific issues and we want to make sure that we're consistent in our approach. So we're here to provide essentially central oversight for the program. We're here for our internal stakeholders, so working with the review teams, helping them out with things, and we also have an external facing component where we interact with biosimilar manufacturers or industry, as we call them, that are developing these products, but also our other stakeholder communities, such as healthcare providers and patients. So, again, we have this inward-facing and external-facing element as a part of the biosimilar review program, all mm-hmm. within CEDAR, and that's housed in my staff. So, we're really the, the leads for the biosimilar program within our center. Uh, we're the only ones who see every biosimilar program, so we're, we're very comprehensive in our scope of oversight for this program. So before we before we get to really defining biosimilars for our listeners, let's just take a step back. Let's talk about the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and really talk about what is the role of the FDA. You know, how does the FDA ensure the safety uh, of drugs for our citizens? And you've also referenced uh, Dr. Crystal Cedar, and maybe you can talk about what Cedar is as well before we get into really defining what biosimilars are. Sure. So the mission of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is to protect and promote the public health of the United States. Uh, As a part of that mission, FDA is responsible for ensuring the safety, efficacy, and security of drugs and biological products, um, in particular, that the agency oversees. And that means that we evaluate drug products, including brand name products, biosimilars, generic products, to make sure that they work correctly and that their health benefits outweigh their known risks. So that's really the the space of the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. There's other centers in the FDA. There's a Center for Veterinary Medicine, a Center for Radiologic and and Devices, a Center for other types of biological products. Um, So we all have a, a product portfolio, per se, that we look at in terms of the products that we regulate. So the Center for Drugs is really focused on what we refer to as therapeutic drug products. And most of the the population would be familiar with those types of things. They're both prescription drugs and uh, over-the-counter drugs that we look at here within this center. Got it. Terrific. Now, I know we want to focus uh, our conversation today on what are referred to as biosimilars. So, Leo, today we're talking about biological products, specifically biosimilars. Can you help define those terms for our listeners? What are we talking about here? Yeah, so that this is, you know, somewhat technically complex. Um, we, we do <laughs> okay. try to break it down as best that we can. Um, right. So biological products are products that are made from living organisms. So the material that they're made from can come from many sources, including humans, animals, microorganisms, such as bacteria or yeast. And biological products are manufactured through what's called biotechnology. And they could be, again, derived from natural sources or in some cases even produced synthetically. So most biological products are more complex in structure and have larger molecules or mixtures of molecules than what would be referred to as conventional drugs that um, we refer to as uh, small molecule drugs. So these conventional or small molecule drugs are made of pure chemical substances and their structures can be more easily characterized. But most biological products are complex mixtures that are more difficult to characterize and cannot be exactly copied. So biological products are among the medications that are used to treat conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis, anemia, inflammatory bowel disease, um, skin conditions such as psoriasis, and various forms of cancer. 
So taking the step beyond biological product, a biosimilar product is a biological product, but it is defined as a biological product that's highly similar to a reference product, notwithstanding minor differences in clinically inactive components, and that there are no clinically meaningful differences between that biosimilar product and the product it compared itself to, which we refer to as the reference product in terms of the safety, purity, and potency of the product. And FDA interprets the term safety, purity, and potency for biological products to mean safety and effectiveness. So FDA uses the term reference product to mean the FDA-approved biological product that the biosimilar product is comparing itself to in its marketing application. And I'm sure we'll probably get into these terms a little bit more and sort of how we approach um, the, these different um, terminologies. Mm-hmm. So to me, it sounds like what you're describing are generic products. Are we talking about generics or is this something different? Uh, it's something different, and it's, mm-hmm. it's important to note that. So for generic products, again, we distinguish between the, this chemically synthesized or small molecule type of product versus a biological product that's going to be produced um, more, most generally in a living system. So when we talk about generic products, generics are essentially copy versions of a small molecule product, and they have their own set of requirements under their own um, legal framework in, in the U.S. in terms of their need to be, they need to show that they have the same active ingredient as the originator product, mm-hmm. and they have to be what's called bioequivalent. So it has the same exposure in the body as the product they compare themselves to, and that's how we look at a generic product. But again, it's a copy version of in that small molecule chemically synthesized space. Got it. For, bio, Got it. for biosimilars, yeah. they are, you know, uh, some concept of a copy version of a biological product, of that originator biological product, because of the complexity of biological products and Mm -hmm. that they're more difficult to analyze and characterize and they're just more complicated molecules, they can't be exactly the same. And that's why we look at them as being highly similar um, to the product that they're comparing themselves to, that originator product, and that there's no clinically meaningful differences. And when we look at that a little bit differently than we do for generic products. Got it. Also, Got it. We, we have products that are biosimilar or interchangeable. Um, and this distinguishes from generic products as well. And and these are more complicated types of of regulatory and legal types of pathways, but these are not generic products. Okay, good good to know. Good distinction. That's a helpful definition. Leah, I've got a couple minutes until our first break, but can you give us an analogy to explain biosimilars and the what you're you're saying this the called the reference <clears throat> the reference product? I hear you give a, a great analogy we have about beer. That might help us wrap our head around this uh, new field of medicine. Right. So um, we'll do something novel here. We'll talk about wine today. Mm. Um, So, um, and again, not to be glib or flippant about this. I'm not saying that, you know, wine is is complicated in the same way that a biological, you know, therapeutic biological product is. But it's it's a little bit more of an accessible way to think about this. Mm -hmm. So say you make a Cabernet Sauvignon. A, mm-hmm. a red wine, Cabernet Sauvignon. Well, you know that if you have, go into the store, there's a whole shelf of Cabernet Sauvignons, and they're all different. Mm-hmm. So even if you say you have a Cabernet from Napa Valley, all Napa Valley Cabernets are not the same. Mm-hmm. But if I want to make a biosimilar to your Cabernet that you make, 
it's not enough to say that my Cabernet is just a Cabernet or my Cabernet comes from Napa Valley or that my Cabernet has the same effect or no clinically meaningful difference from your Cabernet. Mm-hmm. It needs to taste the same. It needs to look the same. It needs to be highly similar to your product. So I have to get your product, your wine, and analyze it. Take it apart. Try to figure out what kind of grapes you use, mm-hmm. what kind of fermenter you use. Do you put your wine in oak barrels for some period of time that give it a certain taste? This is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to copy, mm-hmm. duplicate your wine, mm-hmm. and then I can be a biosimilar. And from FDA's perspective, if someone mm-hmm. doesn't have the data and information to show that, yes, we won't approve it as a biosimilar product. It's just it. another Cabernet. And it, yep. even if it's just another Napa Valley Cabernet, we won't mm-hmm. approve it as a biosimilar. That doesn't mean it's a biosimilar. Got it. Got it. We're going to jump into our uh, we're going to jump into our break here. We're talking with Dr. Leah Crystal, the Associate Director for Therapeutic Biologics in the Office of New Drugs in the FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. Before we go to the break, I'm just going to tell you, Dr. Crystal, to please keep your hands off of my Cabernet. And we're going to take a quick break here and uh, we're going to jump back in in a minute. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIA-B or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. 
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Sandoz. We're joined by Dr. Leah Crystal of the FDA. Leah has been talking with us about an exciting new field of biological medicines called biosimilars. Leah, let's dive back into biosimilars. How how does the FDA go about testing and approving biosimilars for safety and efficacy? Again, we're talking about a product that's that's uh, similar to what you call the the reference product, the original product that was approved by the FDA. So, how do we go about testing for safety and efficacy? Uh, is it the same way as the sort of original review of the original product, or is the process different? So the, the process for biosimilars is different, and the, the type of data that we would look at to demonstrate biosimilarity is different. Um, so that originator or reference product needed to demonstrate that its product was safe and effective for whatever it was seeking approval for in order for the FDA to approve it. That typically comes from what's referred to as a phase three or a pivotal clinical study. Um, some folks might be familiar with that. They may have participated in clinical studies and in, in their therapeutic area. So for a biosimilar, again, they need to demonstrate that it's highly similar and that there are no clinically meaningful differences between the products. So there's no one pivotal study that demonstrates biosimilarity in the way that you think of of a pivotal study to demonstrate safety and effectiveness for that originator or reference product. So the agency looks at what we refer to as a totality of the evidence approach. We're looking at all the data and information, all of that comparative information between the products on uh, a very basic structural level, a functional level, how the product works looking at um, exposure in the body, which is referred to as pharmacokinetics, um, pharmacodynamics, which is response in the body, uh, clinical immunogenicity, and also clinical safety and effectiveness data. But this is comparing the products. It's just not showing in a standalone fashion that the biosimilar works. They have to compare themselves to that reference product or originator product and show that they're highly similar and that there's no clinically meaningful differences. So the majority of this data is comparative data, and we look at it all together, all of these comparisons, to look at whether or not the products are biosimilar. Got it. Got it. Um, Leah, I mentioned at the top of the show the Biologics Price Competition and and Innovation Act uh, that President Obama signed in 2010 as a part of uh, the Affordable Care Act to help spur research and and development of, of, uh, of biosimilars. And I know that that law also did create the sort of abbreviated, you know, approval pathway that you're sort of describing for, for, um, for biologic products. Just uh, tell me any comments that you might have about that, that act and the sort of importance of it. And, you know, how's that helping Americans? How's that helping patients? And then, and then also um, when we think about this shorter approval process, how, how does the process still ensure uh, 
that these biosimilars are really thoroughly tested and are safe for patients. Right. So I, I do want to stress that these products are safe for patients, and FDA mm. really does undertake a, a rigorous and thorough evaluation to ensure that a biosimilar product does meet the standards for approval. So that determination of biosimilarity by FDA means that the biosimilar product is expected to have the same safety, efficacy, the same risk benefit profile as the reference product for the approved indications. So once the agency approves a biosimilar product, patients and healthcare providers will be able to rely on the safety and effectiveness of that product just as they would the reference product that the biosimilar was compared to. So we've talked a little bit about the goal of the Biosimilar Development Program, again, is to demonstrate biosimilarity, not to independently establish the safety and effectiveness of the proposed biosimilar, essentially in isolation. Mm-hmm. So this concept of an abbreviated approval pathway, it doesn't mean that it's a lesser standard. FDA won't okay. approve the product at the end of the day if it's not safe and effective for the conditions of use that they want to be approved for. What this means is that the ability to rely on certain existing scientific knowledge about that Mm -hmm. reference or originator product to support the safety and effectiveness of the biosimilar allows for a potentially shorter and less costly drug development program. Mm -hmm. And this is what's meant by that abbreviated approval pathway. And it is one way to improve access and increase treatment options for the public at hopefully a lower cost. But we do very much want to stress it's not a lesser standard. That's not at all what's meant by abbreviated. It's the data package that's different. And you have this ability to rely on what's known about the reference product through all of this comparative data between the products. Okay. All right. Got it. And I think those are important things to to really reinforce uh, for our listeners. But the idea is that we can bring more options um, more quickly and more affordably uh, to patients, but really with the same expectation of of, of safety and review. Um, And I think that is important to to reinforce. I know, uh, as far as I understand it, Leah, I know there's only one biosimilar drug approved for cancer supportive treatment right now, but many more are certainly in the pipeline and, um, and on, on, on the way. Can you tell us about possible side effects seen in patients from, from the data that you've reviewed? So it's important to note that all drugs have risks and benefits and mm-hmm. biosimilars mm-hmm. are not going to be any different. So the reference products have risks and benefits too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So biosimilars can have side effects, but those side effects are expected to be the same as the reference product that the biosimilar okay. was compared to. That's part of that concept of no clinically meaningful differences. So one of the side effects that folks may be familiar with or have heard of is called immunogenicity, and this is a side effect related to all biological products. So generally, immunogenicity is the body's immune response to substances like a protein that biological products are made from, and that immune response can happen with the use of any biological product. Mm -hmm. So immunogenicity can cause the medication to lose its effectiveness over time, or there could be a rare but serious allergic reaction that happens when a patient is exposed to that biological product. So FDA requires that a biosimilar manufacturer include data and information in their marketing application as a part of demonstrating that there's no clinically meaningful differences um, to include data about that immune response um, in comparison between the two products. And that's really a key element in the demonstration of biosimilarity. So the goal of that clinical immunogenicity assessment is to evaluate for potential differences between the biosimilar product and the reference product Mm -hmm. in these immune responses and to ensure that there's no clinically meaningful difference between those products in the safety profile. 
but theoretically the expectation is that a biosimilar will have a very similar side effect profile to the reference product. That is correct, and that is one of the standards as a part of being able to demonstrate that there's no clinically meaningful difference between the products in terms of safety or effectiveness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, I think these are really certainly um, important questions to uh, address for our listeners. Now, so we talked really about this idea that biosimilars can benefit patients because they will uh, potentially be brought to market more quickly and uh, that they will be perhaps more uh, affordable than their reference products. Again, you know, similarity like generic products are, are, are you know, are cheaper than, than the brand name products. But continuing with that vein around cost of care, which is obviously a huge concern for patients and, and for, for many of our uh, listeners and, and cost is a huge burden for, for uh, many people diagnosed with cancer. What do we know about insurance companies? Um, do they cover biosimilars? Do they prefer biosimilars? Do we expect good news out of uh, insurance companies and you know potentially Medicare about paying for these biosimilars? Right. So provider payments are not under FDA's purview. Um, mm-hmm. That would be more of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services or CMS, and then also uh, private health insurers or state plans that, um, you know, would be more likely to provide that information about what they may or may not cover. Um, FDA doesn't have the authority to regulate pricing or reimbursement for biological products, and that would include insurance coverage. But the intent of the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act and this concept of the abbreviated approval pathway for biological products means that there should be more availability of these products um, in terms of providing treatment options to patients, increasing competition in the marketplace, which we hope will lower treatment costs and then enable greater access um, for more of the patients. Right now, I think um, because we only have five products that are currently approved, and I think three of them are on the market, we're not really sure what the pricing of these products will actually look like. Um, it's expected that as more come on the market um, in terms of maybe two to three biosimilars to the same reference product, we'll get a better idea of pricing. And we do have that happening in one of the spaces. Um, it's for a, a, a product that treats rheumatoid arthritis, um, psoriasis, um, inflammatory bowel disease, other GI diseases. So it's not in the cancer community, but we do have um, for one particular reference product, two biosimilars that are now approved and coming onto the market. So I think we're going to see how the marketplace will react um, in terms of pricing, um, in, in terms of what private insurance companies and also CMS will do in terms of pricing and, and actually seeing the impact of competition in the marketplace and what that does in terms of pricing and access for these products. Got it. Got it. Leah, I just have a, a quick, we only have about a minute until the break, but just a, a quick question. I know sometimes with a brand product versus a generic, sometimes a patient will re- react or respond differently to the, to the brand uh, product than they will to a generic. Um, is, that, is that also possible with biosimilars? Could a patient perhaps not respond to a biosimilar, but that they, they could respond to the reference product? So the standards that we have for approval are a little bit different. Um, Mm -hmm. Certainly, it's possible, but it's likely if a patient doesn't respond to a reference product, again, what we mean by treatment options isn't that if the reference product doesn't work for you, you can take the biosimilar because it's essentially not 
going to be clinically different from the reference product. Um, so, you know, we're, we're talking about options sort of within a therapeutic class or to different products and in a different cost that might increase access um, in terms of treatment options. But it's certainly possible. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of having that no clinically meaningful difference, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's unlikely. So it wouldn't be likely that a patient would get a biosimilar that didn't work and then they would be put on the reference product? Correct. Okay, great. Very helpful clarification. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. With us today, we have Dr. Leah Crystal. She's the Associate Director for Therapeutic Biologics in the Office of New Drugs in the FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and Research. We are talking about biosimilars. We have a lot more questions uh, for Dr. Crystal. This is really a fascinating conversation. We're going to continue uh, to break this down for our listeners. Don't go away. We will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. 
Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by Sandos. We have Dr. Leah Crystal, who is Associate Director for Therapeutic Biologics in the Office of New Drugs in the FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and Research on with us today. Uh, Dr. Leah Crystal, let's talk about the the healthcare providers, the doctors, the nurses, and others who interface with patients. Do they know about biologics and biosimilars? Are they being uh, educated on them? Are they starting to prescribe them? Tell us about the education that's happening with the provider community. Right. So FDA, as well as medical product trade associations, healthcare therapeutic organizations, such as the American College of Rheumatology and the American Society of Clinical Oncology, are all producing education and training materials targeted towards healthcare providers about biosimilars. So certainly many healthcare providers already prescribe biological products, and they're familiar with the concept of biological products, and we're all actively working to educate the community about biosimilars, too. As I mentioned, we have five biosimilar products that are currently approved by FDA. There's many more in the pipeline. So we're going to see more of these products coming into the marketplace. And, um, again, all of these uh, organizations are looking towards educating the healthcare provider community as well as the patient-stakeholder community so that folks are familiar with the concept of biosimilar products. But, again, biological products have been out there for a while, and biosimilars are biological products, so many in the healthcare community are familiar with biological products already. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, can you, when you, you, you've referenced a couple times there are five biosimilars now um, uh, on the market. Can you, can you talk about those and what they are, what they are treating, what areas of, of uh, disease they're treating? Right. So we have one biosimilar that is um, Zarzio that is a, a biosimilar to Neupogen. Um, so that's a um, supportive care product in um, the cancer therapies um, that's treating neutropenia or low white blood cells. Um, there are some other indications for that product as well. The other products that we have that are approved, um, we have um, biosimilars to Humira, uh, to Remicade, and to um, Embrel. Um, the indications there vary amongst the products that they include for treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, for skin conditions such as psoriasis, and also for um, uh, gastrointestinal diseases such as inflammatory bowel disease. Um, so they don't all have those same indications, but that's sort of the, the area of the family um, that we're looking at for those particular products. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And can you talk about what we can perhaps see or expect um, in the cancer space, when it comes to uh, when it comes to biosimilars, are we going to see sort of uh, you know a rapid number of these come to the market for cancer? Are there certain diseases that they're studying you know kind of in these early phases? You know what can we anticipate uh, in the cancer space? Right. So we have a number of. Uh, biosimilar development programs for several different reference products. Um, I think it's it's somewhere in the 
the mid-20s now, maybe upper 20s, to the, the reference products that we're seeing biosimilar development to. I can't name products, unfortunately, um, mm-hmm. because I'm mm-hmm. precluded from doing that, but I can sure. say, um, because we've had some public information that's gone out, just yeah. recently on July 13th of this year, FDA held public advisory committee meetings to discuss proposed biosimilars to Herceptin and Avastin both of which are used in certain types of cancer treatment. Um, These products, um, the biosimilars to those reference products are not currently approved, um, but we did have that public discussion. So folks um, can be uh, aware that that there's development in that space, and I do think that we will see more um, cancer therapeutic biosimilars that are being developed and hopefully coming on the market soon. Mm -hmm. And would would there be any logic that... um that we're going to see those sooner for for the biologics that have been uh, for the reference products that have been on the market longer, you know, for a longer period of time. So, example for you know, are there sort of protections in place like there are with other drugs, so that these development programs that there are patents and things like that that would um, sort of inform those development programs. Yes, yes. So there, there are um, what we refer to as exclusivity protections that the FDA mm-hmm. does have to look at. So for a, a biological product, an innovator biological product, it can have up to 12 years of uh, exclusivity before the agency could approve a biosimilar to that particular reference product. Um, it's fairly complicated. I won't get into it, but I will say, mm-hmm. you know, there, there is potentially this, this 12-year period where FDA could not approve a biosimilar to a specific reference product. So I think it is likely that where you're going to see development is for some of the products that have been approved for longer than 12 years. It's not to right. say that somebody won't start their development to mm-hmm. a particular product prior to that, but the agency couldn't license a, a, a biosimilar or approve a biosimilar prior to that date if there was an exclusivity protection in place. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certainly patents that will come into play, and we've seen some of that um, already being um, handled in the courts that's outside of FDA's purview, um, but certainly there's other protections that are in place that will have to be worked through before some of these products can come to market. And I guess it would also follow logically that it's because of the complexity of these products that there would be a a fairly significant investment in bringing a biosimilar to market because of the complexity, because of the investment, the labs, things like that. Is that, would that be sort of a logical conclusion? I I think it's a fair assessment. I I think overall developing a a biological product, a biosimilar to a biological product is is likely going to be more expensive than developing a a generic to a small molecule product. There's certainly an investment that has to occur there. Um, But the intent, again, of this is is to have a shorter and less costly development program that would have needed to be done for the reference or originator product. And hopefully as as a part of not just creating competition in the marketplace to reduce costs, but if there's less cost that's going into the development of that product, hopefully that will be reflected in the market price of the product as well. That is absolutely the hope. (laughs) And I think that we as patient advocates will need to keep an eye on that uh, as more of these products do do come to the market. Um, uh, We talked a little bit earlier, Lee, about, you know, providers, some uh, who are really getting accustomed to working with uh, biosimilars. Do you see any indication, any feedback from the providers that they you know, that they prefer uh, the biosimilars to the to the reference biologics? And, you know, are there any, any sort of patterns or trends that we're seeing in terms of the providers prescribing these? Any feedback from providers that has been helpful to you at the FDA? 
So I think right now with a few biosimilar products that we have on the market, we don't have a lot of um, prescribing data that could tell us what products may or may not be preferred at this point. Um, the healthcare community is certainly aware of biosimilars and interested in biosimilars, and, and they're looking for information. Um, we know that they're concerned with our patients' ability to access biological medications and, and the cost of treatment. In general, again, these are very expensive products typically. So again, hopefully biosimilars will increase treatment options for patients and hopefully um, improve access at lower cost for their patients. So there's a lot of interest in this area. Um, certainly healthcare providers would want to, to know how FDA is approving the products, what those standards are. Um, they want to know what products they're um, patient is taking. Um, and we had talked a little bit before about, you know, if the reference product didn't work or the biosimilar didn't work, would they be changed to the other one? And, and again, part of the standard is that there's no clinically meaningful difference, so it's expected to have that same safety and efficacy profile as the reference product. But we do know that healthcare providers, you know, are focused as they should be, and patients should also be focused on the safety of, for the individual patient. Um, so, you know, there may be some differences in inactive ingredients in the same way that you have differences with generic products of a, a, a filler or some sort of additive that, that can have a reaction. So it is important to remember to be your own healthcare advocate and, and be aware of, of what you're on and have that, that conversation with your doctor. And if something doesn't feel right, you should go back and talk to them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, let me also ask you, um, what is the role of the pharmacist uh, in all of this, we discussed the providers, but as it relates to the pharmacists, are they uh, being trained uh, in these in these biosimilars and understanding, you know, sort of biosimilars being prescribed versus the reference product, what the similarities are, uh, you know, and sort of understanding how this relates to the pharmacist and prescribing role. Right. So we, we know we've already had some interactions with, with some of the organizations, the pharmacist organizations, and they're interested about this as well. So generally, pharmacists would dispense drugs to patients, um, order their healthcare provider in, in a clinic setting or a hospital setting that were prescribed by, by the prescriber. So pharmacists may also advise patients and healthcare providers in the selection of a product, dosages, interactions, side effects of the medication. Um, as was mentioned, but we haven't talked much about it, there's this concept of interchangeable products. And an interchangeable product may be substituted um, without the intervention of the healthcare provider who prescribed the product. And most folks think about that as pharmacy-level substitution. So pharmacists do need to be aware of this. Um, FDA doesn't oversee um, rules around substitution or laws around substitution that's overseen at the state's. Um, and it can vary from state to state, but there is this concept of substitution for interchangeable products, and so folks should be aware of that, and pharmacists would certainly have a role in that pharmacy-level substitution aspect. And is some of that substitution also driven by the insurance companies then? That will likely occur. I think that that happens with, with any um, drug product, um, you know, currently in the environment. Um, so there's tiering of products about decisions about which product um, for a treatment a particular patient may need to take or start with. There's interactions between the doctor, the insurance company, the pharmacist. There's also what may or may not be in stock at a certain pharmacy of, of what's available. So I don't think that, you know, that this is a novel concept, but certainly, as was said before, in terms of pricing and preference and what's going to be covered, that's outside of FDA's purview. Um, but 
you know, I, I think that the incorporation of these products into sort of the, the broad spectrum of healthcare products that are available and um, prescription products that are available, we'll have to see how it is that, that insurance companies do this um, and, and approach these products in terms of reimbursement and cost. Mm-hmm. And then just quickly before we get to our break, so I imagine with the doctors and nurses and, you know, who are sort of getting training on this and as they go for continuing uh, education, I imagine perhaps the pharmacists are also in their sort of trainings and recertifications and things like that are also being trained on these biosimilars and also I'm sure having conversations about the sort of substitution and inter- interchangeability that you're describing. Yes, yes. And FDA has provided some training for the healthcare provider community. Um, we have mm. a continuing education course that's available on our website. And we know that the various healthcare providers have been taking that, including pharmacists. And again, we've had interactions with the pharmacy stakeholder community as well. Um, so they're mm. actively training on this and definitely have an interest in this area too. Yeah. Terrific, terrific. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. We're talking with Dr. Leah Crystal from the FDA about biosimilars. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We will be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand, choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today, we're joined by Dr. Leah Crystal, who is the FDA's foremost expert on biosimilars and biological products. Dr. Crystal, um, we talked in the last segment about uh, education and training for uh, the providers, the doctors, the nurses. We talked about pharmacists. Now, let's talk about the patients. Will, will patients know if they are receiving a biosimilar um, are, you know, is the drug labeling clear? Would you imagine that the doctor would explain to them that they're getting a biosimilar versus a reference product? How we, as, as this uh, area really emerges, how should we be thinking about patient education and engagement on this topic? Right. So what a hospital, a clinic, or a pharmacy uses and dispenses is up to the prescriber, insurance company, and in some cases, availability of of what's in stock at a a particular institution. Patients should certainly ask their prescriber about what product they're taking if they have questions. Um, As far as the labeling goes, um, FDA does um, have a, a draft um, policy that they've been putting into place when we've been approving biosimilar products, that there is a statement in what's referred to as the prescribing information that a healthcare provider would look at in order to make a prescribing decision about a product that does say that the product is biosimilar. So that information is there and available to healthcare providers. The actual product that would be dispensed, there isn't that information necessarily on the product. But FDA has developed a policy regarding the naming of certain biological products where there's a unique identifier that's a part of one of the names of the product that's referred to as the proper name. And there's a suffix that would be attached, um, and that's unique to the product. And also many of the products have a unique brand name. So if a patient is used to getting one brand name and then they have a a prescription for a product that has another brand name, they would certainly be aware that there was a a change or a difference there. Um, But again, we really want to stress that patients should always talk to their doctor or pharmacist about their prescriptions, and they should ask those questions and and really be their own healthcare advocate and be aware of of what it is that they're receiving and what it is that they're taking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just think at this point, obviously, patients don't even know to be, you know, asking these questions. Um, so I think it's, it is an important area, growing area uh, of patient education uh, that we're, I think, you know, again, we as organizations that, that do this work to educate and advocate uh, on behalf of patients will really need to, I think, step up our game in educating patients about biosimilars and really uh, around what questions to ask. Do you also um, you know, certainly we know that, that in the, the cancer space and in other areas, there are, uh, you know, treatment guidelines and there are organizations that put forth treatment guidelines um, in cancer. We also know that in some institutions with some healthcare uh, and insurance companies, there are um, clinical pathways, um, sort of approved treatment pathways uh, for patients. Should we expect to see an emergence of uh, biosimilars in both sort of treatment guidelines and in clinical pathways? Yes. Um, I think as we have more products that will come on the market, um, you're going to see um, you know more and more of this incorporated into those treatment guidelines and what it is that the um, you know, therapeutic communities are putting out in terms of, of giving direction and support and, and assistance to the prescribers in the different therapeutic areas. We already know in the space of cancer therapies that, uh, again, folks like um, the American Society for um, Cancer or Oncology, ASCO, I'm sorry, I can't remember their exact American Society of Clinical point. Oncology, yep. Thank you. 
Um, uh-huh. I'm just so used to the acronym ASCO. Yeah. Um, we know that they're working on some guidelines and a position statement. There's other um, organizations in the, the cancer therapeutic community who are working on, um, you know, guidelines um, as well as educational statements and, and, and working with the prescribers in this area. So I do expect that as we have products that are coming on the market in this space that you'll see more of those changes. But even before products are coming on the market, they're aware of them and they are working to incorporate this um, for their own stakeholders. Mm-hmm. We talked about a uh, biosimilar that's on the market, a supportive care product um, in oncology. As you look into the uh, crystal ball that I know you have there at the FDA, when do you think we might see the first biosimilar for an, an actual cancer treatment? Are we looking at 2017? Are we looking at 2018? Where are we in that process? Uh, so again, um, you know, earlier this year we did have two public advisory committee meetings for um, cancer therapy biosimilars. Um, one a proposed biosimilar to Herceptin, and another a proposed biosimilar to Avastin. So those are not approved yet. Um, hopefully, they will be uh, approved soon. Um, but we already know that once FDA approves a product, um, it, it's not like it's on the market the next day. And there's other mm-hmm. factors that come into play in terms of when that product would come to market. So there may be a delay between the approval of a product by FDA and when that product comes to market. And that's something that's outside of FDA's purview. But mm-hmm. I, I do think that because we're, we're seeing this public discussion, we're seeing marketing applications for these products that we will be seeing them come on the market um, certainly within the next year, I, I hope. And and uh, as we sort of move towards the, uh, the the end of our show, and this has been just a really terrific discussion, Leah, but, but you know, in your opinion, where do you see the field of, of biologics and, 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 and biosimilars going? Uh, I know it is still, you know, in, in, in a fairly early, uh, early stages, but uh, I don't know. It seems to me that this is going to explode. Do we expect to see this as a big, uh, big area of uh, clinical development, a growing area for the FDA, a growing area for the private sector? Is this, uh, is this going to be big on the horizon? Um, I, I think it is. Um, we have um, somewhere around 65 to 70 active development programs for f- proposed biosimilar products. Um, mm. We also have a number of marketing applications that have been publicly disclosed at this point in terms of submission to the agency, maybe 14 mm-hmm. or 15. So we know that many of today's most important medications are biological products, and these would include biosimilars. And these drugs, while expensive, have really revolutionized how we treat many of today's most serious life-threatening and life-altering conditions and diseases. Mm-hmm. So these products are really important in, in the therapeutic toolbox that we have for treating um, very serious medical conditions. So introducing biosimilars into the U.S. will benefit patients who rely on biological products as a part of their health care uh, in a variety of ways. So patients who currently need biologics or who may need them mm-hmm. in the future will have access to a larger number of medications. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, again, the increase in market competition uh, will lead to yeah. reduced costs for both patients and our healthcare system. Yeah, absolutely. And that is certainly uh, our hope. But I was just imagine, you know, with immunotherapies, with other therapies coming onto the market, that this is really going to be a growing uh, growing area. Just quickly, Leah, um, are, are there any resources at the FDA or on the FDA website for patients and, and, and uh, lay folk? Yes. So we have a website that is www.fda.gov backslash biosimilars. And it's Great. a very straightforward link um, where folks can go. There's a number of resources that are on that page targeted towards um, 
industry or manufacturers that would produce these products as well as healthcare providers and patients. And we are in the process currently of revising those websites, um, changing the content, making it more accessible. Mm-hmm. We also have uh, an education campaign that's targeted towards healthcare providers that mm-hmm. we will be rolling out um, sometime this year. Great. And Great. once we finish that, we will turn towards uh, developing materials for the patient and consumer stakeholder community. And as Terrific. part of that, we will be engaging with the stakeholder communities to find out what their needs are and Great. also to do message testing to make sure that what we say is understandable. Terrific. Uh, Dr. Leah Crystal, it's been really a pleasure having you on the show today. We uh, will look forward to working with you uh, at the FDA on some of those uh, sort of patient-facing um, materials and and, uh, and resources. This is such an important topic, and we're, we're happy that we're together with you on the leading edge of educating patients about these therapies. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, we would love to help you here at the Cancer Support Community. If you need support, education, navigation services, visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org or call our helpline at 888-793-9355. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. <music>